Bill C. from Bill, Los Angeles. Speaking at the Sinus Gruppen's Christmas Convention in Stockholm, Sweden, December 12, 2009. Bill C., enjoy. Let's pray. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change those things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. Bill, alcoholist. Is that pretty close? Very close. Uh, big like Swede. I saved my wife from aimlessly wandering from man to man. It was kind of a form of service, you know. You'd have helped her too. She was. Um, we've had a wonderful time. I got sick. I'm sorry that I wasn't here last night. It's the first time something like that's ever happened to me. Um, usually, any chance to shoot off my mouth, I'm right there, you know. And uh, and uh, but I feel better today, and um, it's just really a pleasure to be here. We've had some good tour guides. We had uh, Eva Lota. She is a walking GPS, that woman. <laughs> she has more information than you could possibly ever need. And, uh, you know, she could be just lying and we'd have no idea either, you know. 1621, 1432, you know, could be anything. What a fun girl. Um, um, we had Friedrich, not as good as Eva Lota, you know, but friendly, very friendly. And we knew we were in trouble when he had to ask a stranger for directions. I looked at Karen, and I go, I think we're on our own here, babe. You know, do you have Eva's phone number? Uh, we had a good time. We saw the Vasa. You know, the Swedes are willing to go to any length to recycle. You know, and that's, that's a remarkable achievement. Talk about green. That is some green stuff, you know. And uh, <clears throat> Have you noticed it's snowing out? Yes. You should move. <laughs> you know, snow's not good. Cold snow. We're from Southern California. We don't have weather. Uh, we voted it out some years ago. You know, we like a constant 70 degrees. You know, you can't... I, I have the wonderful opportunity, Karen and I both do, to travel quite a bit in AA. Um, we, we go everywhere. I, you know, I'm, I'm a zealot. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I think it's fun. People talk about doing service. It's just a hoot. I mean, I mean, we wouldn't do it if we weren't having a good time, you know. Willpower and ego will only take you so far. I mean, at the core of it, you really have to enjoy it. You have to really, really get something out of it that other people don't. And, and I just, it's the most exciting and interesting and fascinating thing that's ever happened in my life. And I, I pursue it with a lot of energy. I really, I, I like doing it. And I love meeting the people. And uh, so you can't help but think about, look at this structure that you and I have built, this Alcoholics Anonymous. Look at what we've built. Isn't it remarkable? What a remarkable thing. Uh, David Hawkins in his book, Power Versus Force, makes a pretty powerful statement. He says that Alcoholics Anonymous is the single most significant social movement of the 20th century. I think he's probably right. He estimates that 50% of the population of North America alone, United States, Canada, Mexico, 50% of the population has been touched by Alcoholics Anonymous. That's 300 million people just there. That's the single most significant social movement of the 20th century. There's over 300 12-step programs that have spun off from Alcoholics Anonymous. 300. When they came up with Codependence Anonymous, they came up with an organization that absolutely every human being qualifies for. 
I mean, everybody can work the steps now. Everybody, whether they need it or not, you know. In Iran is a Muslim country, which I think everybody knows now. <clears throat> Certainly we do. And uh, so there's no alcohol in Iran, right? Therefore, there's no alcoholism in Iran. Well, there's alcoholics there, and they figured out how to get some booze, like we do. Very ingenious people. And uh, if there's no alcoholism in Iran, the government, therefore, does not allow Alcoholics Anonymous. It's not allowed in Iran because there's no alcoholism because there's no alcohol. Logic, you know. A few years ago, Narcotics Anonymous, which is allowed because narcotics is just illegal. It's not immoral. <laughs> There's some logic in that, I guess. So you can have Narcotics Anonymous because there is narcotics addiction because there is narcotics. Narcotics Anonymous had a convention in Tehran. 12,000 people showed up. 12,000 people. Do you suppose there's some alcoholics hiding out in the Narcotics Anonymous meeting? <laughs> Planning the takeover? You know? I just think that's a great story. Um, now, this organization that you and I have built, because without us, it's nothing. It doesn't exist without us. It's a bottom-up structure. We run the thing. And we run it incredibly poorly. I mean, stop and think about it. The first rule in AA is everybody gets to come. Well, that's bullshit. You know, I mean, you can't just have anybody come here. You know, if it was left up to me, I'd weed a few of you out. You know, so everybody gets to come. Everybody gets to come. Each meeting can be completely different from another meeting. There is no prescribed format for any meetings. You can pretty much do whatever you want. And yet it, it runs. It runs. There's people around, there's speakers that go around that talk about how Alcoholics Anonymous has lost its edge. That we used to have a 75% success rate, and now it's less than 5%. My sponsor and I do a little workshop on this. We do the statistics and everything, which I promise I will not bore you with. But I'm here to report to you that that is not true. That Alcoholics Anonymous is as alive and vibrant and effective as it has ever been. Ever. It's better than it's ever been. Better than it's ever been. In Los Angeles, the children are coming children. Do you get that here? Do you get 16-year-old, 15-year-old, 14-year-old kids coming to the meetings at all? We do. In droves. They come. In droves. And they refuse to leave. <laughs> and we make it hard on them. You know? I mean, a lot of the old guys in the meetings leave. They say, well, we're not a daycare center. There's like some theory that the reason the kids are coming to AA is because it's so hip. My friend Scott Redmond says, Alcoholics Anonymous offered me a level of lameness that I did not know was available. You know, AA is not hip. I think the kids are coming here because they need help. My men's stag, my home group is a men's stag, men only. Monday nights in Hermosa Beach. It's the Hermosa Beach Men's Stag. <clears throat> Every Monday night, there's between 100 and 110 guys in this room. And about six or seven years ago, the kids start showing up. There's always a few, maybe 18, 19, 20 years old. Now that they're really starting to show up. There's these long-term recovery places in Los Angeles. It's a great place. Parents see their kids are having trouble. They ship them off to us, and they end up in our meetings. And uh, there is this kid there. He's 15 years old, and he's taking a birthday cake for one year. 
And he's standing up at the head of the room. He's short. He's just a child. He's not even done growing yet, you know. And he's in front of all these old guys like me. And it can be very intimidating. It's known as kind of an intimidating meeting until you get to know the meeting. Then you realize that it's, it's just all poof and buff and, you know, we're just weird. And uh, so the kid gets up there and he's given his talk, his birthday pitch. And at the end... He stands back and he points his finger out and he yells out at everybody. He says, and if you're sitting out there tonight and you don't have a sponsor and you're not working the steps, may God have mercy on your soul. I went right up to him and asked him to be my sponsor. He's still around. He refuses to leave. He's sponsoring guys now. I had this other guy walk up to me, and he's one of the kids that I said, well, they're not kids anymore. They stay sober. They grow up. This kid is now 24, 25 years old. He's like eight years sober. And he's sponsoring this guy that I know that's in his 40s. And the guy comes up to me, and he goes, don't you think I should have a sponsor that's kind of my own age? And I looked at him and I go, seems to be working. I wouldn't rock the boat, dude. You know? I don't think we've lost our edge. This is exactly what Bill Wilson wanted. Remember, he wanted to build hospitals across the country. He went to Rockefeller and he said, give me a bunch of money. I've got the solution to alcoholism. And I'll build hospitals across the country and we'll put people in it and they'll stop putting them in prison and we'll put them in recovery and we'll sober them all up. It'll be wonderful and I'll be the boss. <laughs> I think Rockefeller knew that look that was in Bill's eye, you know. Whoa. You know, and uh, fortunately for us, he said no. But he never stopped supporting him, ever. He never stopped supporting him. Um, My father, when he died in 1999, was 45 years sober. And uh, I grew up around, I was six years old when he got sober in 1954. And I grew up literally in AA. And uh, hanging out in the kitchens and bringing out the coffee and the donuts. and, And we were hanging out with Chuck Chamberlain and... Clancy was the newcomer, and they all said he'd never make it. You know, I've cleared that with him. It's true. The guys that are still alive still say he'll never make it, you know. But he seems to be outliving them all now. You know, it's like it's amazing. And uh, my father was involved in something that Wilson called the Big 12 Step. And what he was trying to do, and he was, he was successful at it, is he went back to Washington, D.C., And uh, they lobbied Congress to support, to to acknowledge alcoholism as a disease. The American Medical Association in the 50s called it an illness. Marty Mann and some other people really pressured them to call it a disease, which technically it's really not, but that's another story. But they, they got it, the American Medical Association, to call it a disease so they could take that back to Washington, D.C., and get the Congress to acknowledge that and start putting people in recovery programs, get the insurance industry to support it and start supporting recovery programs. And it worked. It happened. It happened. Now it's changed a lot over the years. There used to be nothing but medical model where you'd go in there for 30 days and pay 35 or $40,000 and that wasn't working. The insurance industry wouldn't pay for it anymore. So most of them are social model kind of stuff now. But it's still happening. And when these parents see their children struggling and suffering from alcoholism and meth addiction and whatnot, they've got a place they can send them to. There's a recourse now. And they're taking advantage of this. So are a lot of other people. And Alcoholics Anonymous is, in a lot of cases, very antagonistic towards this. They're very antagonistic towards the recovery industry, which is just strange to me. They're our friends. They're not, they may be stupid, But they're our friends. I mean, they may not know what we're about. It's up to us to tell them. You know? 
And these children are coming now. And I'll tell you something. When you have the experience of sitting across the kitchen table with a kid that's 15 or 16 years old, the age difference goes away. And I'll tell you something. It's like looking myself in the eyes. It's redemption. It's redemption. This is the healing that happens here. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. I regret the past. I regret some things about the past. And a lot of those things that I regret are touched by these kids that come over to my house. Karen feeds them, you know. She has a lot of girls. I have a lot of guys. We try to keep them separated, you know. It's... She tries to pair them up sometimes, which is, given the gene pool, is not a good idea. But it's redemption. When I was 17, I was a bad drunk in high school. I'd already been to jail. I had a gun on me some of the time. I was angry. I was full of rage. I have no idea where it came from. My parents didn't beat me. They didn't molest me. They were nice people. My dad was sober. You know, he got sober. He broke the chain in his family, and it's a strong chain on my father's side of the family. You can see, you know, some people, well, is it genetic or isn't? In my family, it's genetic. You can see it. Like my sponsor says, alcoholism doesn't run in my family. It gallops, you know, and, uh, and I inherited this. And, uh, but at 17, having been raised in AA and all this stuff, you'd think I'd know better. But, you know, we all know, if you've, any of us have been around here at all, that self-knowledge as a tool to combat alcoholism is worthless. Sometimes it's a detriment, you know, but it doesn't matter. If I've got it, I got it. And I set off the dragon and off it went and it ran hard and long for a long time. 17, I was a bad drunk in high school. At 22, I was in the Oregon State Mental Institution. I needed a rest. You know, my story, because, you know, I should have done this last night. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it because I'd rather talk about AA. I'd rather talk about recovery. We all know the story. And my story is I was a surfer, and I was a biker, and I was a tough guy. And I never went to the beach. My motorcycle rarely ran, and I was afraid to fight, but I looked really good. I had a chrome Nazi helmet for a hat and a primary chain for a belt and black greasy Levi's and big black boots with chains around them. I've got tattoos all over me, but I had a clip-on earring because I didn't want to hurt myself. You know? <laughs> Have you heard that before? So I see there's some other phonies in the room. Yeah, only in AA does that joke go over. You know, it isn't a joke. <laughs> um, I got married at 18, 19. We had two kids right away. Went up to Oregon to grow our own. And uh, it was the 60s, you know. It was, a, it was a great time, actually. It was really a lot of fun back in the 60s, what I remember of it. And, uh, and I, you know, so many of us, our stories are, I think the whole idea behind drinking, I believe what it was, was to have a couple of pops and get out of the house and go have an adventure, you know, meet her or him, get lucky and have some fun. Every one of us tells the story about how long before we drank, we didn't feel part of. We were separate from, we were isolated, we were aliens dropped off and we're waiting for the mothership to return, you know. It's like, we all have our own way of telling that story. And we talk about that like it's some kind of unique experience, like it's unique to alcoholics. I think every kid feels that way. Every kid feels disaffected, not in charge, not part of. We have the power, they're the kids, you know? And they all, and they start pushing that envelope and they all feel that way. The difference between us and them is we medicated that and we never grew out of it. 
You know, we even have a term that we use. We call it alcoholic thinking, as if there is such a thing. You know, um, Silkworth heard us use that term in the early AA meetings. He got so freaked out, he ran home and wrote a paper about it. He goes, oh, God, they're making stuff up now. You know, they've come up with their own diagnosis, and now they're starting to come up with their own terminology, you know. You know. So the rest of the world, the only place you ever hear that term alcoholic thinking is in Alcoholics Anonymous. You never hear that anywhere else. No one else ever uses that term. What they call it is that we are emotionally immature. And we hear that and we go, no. I have special thinking. I have alcoholic thinking and it's never going away. And you need to consider that when you're dealing with me. I have special thinking. I think we're just emotionally immature. I think what happened to us is we started drinking and or using at 14, 15, 16, somewhere in there generally, some earlier. I have a guy that I sponsor says, I started drinking when I was 12, but I did not drink like a normal 12-year-old. Somehow I understood him when he said that. I, I still think about that. What would, why would I understand that? Maybe it's because I have alcoholic thinking. You know? We started drinking or using. And we missed all the lessons of life. We skipped the experiences. We either miss them completely, some of us miss them completely. You can see some people in AA have virtually no social graces whatsoever, you know? I mean, it's funny, we'll start, we'll start being critical of each other, right? Every once in a while, you got to stop and realize who you're sitting with here. Who are we? We are the dregs of society, you know? <laughs> We're the losers. They make movies about us. We're usually the characters that get killed. You know? You can always tell when there's an alcoholic involved in something in the news because it was an attempted robbery. You know? He just forgot to bring the car. It was an attempted rape, but the woman beat his ass up. You know? That's who we are. And we skipped all of that. And now that we're sober, we're going to grow up now. And the chances of us doing that and looking good are really slim. <laughs> you know, it's really going to be painful, you know. And, and here we are. So be patient with each other. Be patient with each other love each other we got a ways to go doesn't happen overnight and we're the children of instant gratification we want it all right now and it just doesn't come that way we have to have the experiences that it takes for us to grow up and you cannot speed that process up but you can slow it down by picking and choosing what you will and won't do. By taking control over your life with this finely tuned instrument that you've brought with you to the party. You know? You know. What a wonderful tool. You know? Like, why would I ever consciously put myself in a position to be uncomfortable? I've spent my entire life ensuring that I'm never uncomfortable. I've, I've created a chemical environment around myself 
to be sure that I'm never on. And now I'm sober and you expect me to choose things that are going to cause me to be uncomfortable so that I can learn from them and then grow up. No, I'm not doing that. No, you know, the most spiritual thing said in Alcoholics Anonymous, the most spiritual thing that you will ever hear in AA is get in the car. Well, where are we going? What do you care? Get in the car. Well, who else is going? I want to be sure the cool people are going. I wouldn't want to go with the uncool people. You know, I mean, we're going to make choices like that. We're not going to get in the car. If you leave it up to me, I won't get in the car. And don't tell me things like there's a different program for everyone in Alcoholics Anonymous. Make one for yourself. Really? Really? You're going to allow me to make a special program for Billy? You know, it'll be interesting. You know, I think there's only one program and we all know what it is. Matter of fact, I think what keeps us together in these rooms is that we have a way out upon which we all agree. What gets us here is the tragedy of our lives. What keeps us here is we all agree on the way out. We may not do it, but we all know what it is. We all know what it is. And it's the same for everyone. It's not different for somebody else. It's the same for everyone. The pace may be a little different. But it's the same. So at 19, I got married. At 22, I'm in a mental institution. I had two small children. I was sticking needles in my arm every day, and I was drinking like a fish, and I wasn't coming home to that family, and they were on welfare, and I was running with an outlaw motorcycle gang, and I was in trouble. At 22, working with these kids, I have, it caused me to remember what I was like when I was 17. And where did it progress from there? At 22, there's no party. There was no party. At 22, the party had been long over at 22 years old. Nobody was knocking on my door asking, can Billy come out and play? You know, at 22, I needed you then. I don't remember anybody talking to me about recovery. It was tough. I mean, we joke about it. We laugh about it now because it's not like that anymore. But when it's like that, it's not funny, is it? I destroyed a family. I had no business being married, much less having children. But there you go. I came back down to Los Angeles and uh, my father gave me a job in his machine shop and he let me sleep in his garage. And I tried to get normal. And what normal is for an alcoholic of my variety is you got to quit shooting heroin because you can't get anybody to go along with the concept of social heroin use. You know, it's pretty much a lifestyle. Um, you got to quit taking LSD because normal people have two-way communication with each other. And LSD just isn't conducive to two-way communication. It's a one-sided kind of a thing. And... Uh, so you got to quit the drugs, essentially. you got to quit doing drugs because it's too weird. And uh, you drink on the weekends. You only drink on weekends because normal people have jobs. And they go to them days in a row. I've, I've watched them do it, man. I've, I've, I've watched them. It's weird. And, uh, and when I drink, I don't show up no matter what. Everything stops. My life just stops when I drink. Everything stops. So what you do during the week is you smoke pot because it's green and it's from God and it's not really drugs, you know. It's biodegradable and, you know, it's just pot. It's what you do in between getting really high. And uh, so I tried the marijuana maintenance combined with a little drinking program for another 15 years. And the other thing you got to do if you're an alcoholic of my variety is you got to find a woman because you can never, ever be alone. It is a group effort getting me through life. It takes a village, you know. And, uh, um, and you can find people out there that will take us on. You know, it'll take on our case. And I met this woman and we set up housekeeping and, and we went on a ride together.
And for 15 years, I tried to keep it together. I tried to keep it together, and, and it, just, it, it just wouldn't stay together. And uh, pretty soon, I'm drinking all the time, and uh, all the drugs were gone. There was, there was no more rock and roll. This wasn't a party. I mean, it was maintenance drinking. I was drunk from the neck down. There was no more mental and emotional relief. And, uh, and it was just miserable. And uh, at the end of that, I, I, we had gotten married and I had two more children and they were very young at the time. I was 37 years old. And like any good gangster, I called my mom. <laughs> God bless the mothers. And this is a woman that had been in Al-Anon 30 years. And uh, she came and got me quietly before I changed my mind. And she checked, checked me into a recovery program in Costa Mesa, California, a place called Starting Point. Now, I went to my first shrink when I was 13 years old because I had rage, my first psychiatrist. I had rage. And uh, my mother said, boy, there's something wrong with the boy. It's just not that bad. So she sent me to a therapist. And he helped me. And he introduced me to my favorite subject, me, you know, the lifelong pursuit of self, finding myself as if there's anything to look for. And uh, I spent two tours of duty in the mental institution. This was a lockdown facility with barbed wire on the top. They were serious. And right across the street was the penitentiary, so you knew where you were coming from or going to, one or the other, you know. I spent two and a half years in group therapy at one time. <clears throat> I've been gestalted and rolfed and primal screamed. I know more about myself than is safe to know. But it is my favorite subject. So when it was time for me to seek help, or whatever it was I was looking for that day, March the 27th, 1985, um, I could not imagine just coming to AA and not drinking. And I needed to be checked in somewhere. I needed, I needed that. And my mother agreed, and she checked me in this place. Well, while I was in there, they made me wear a sign around my neck. I had to make the sign. We made it in crafts. It's a little rectangular piece of cardboard with a string that went through it, and it said, I am not a counselor. Because evidently there was some confusion about that. <laughs> yeah. So after 35 days, they let me out. <laughs> they just let us out. <laughs> like, like we're okay now. You know? Go forth, multiply. You know? <laughs> and where do we end up? Here. This is the world's aftercare program. You know, there's no referrals from Alcoholics Anonymous. There's no place you walk into and you walk in there and you say, I'm from AA. They sent me here. <laughs> that place doesn't exist. This is it. The inmates are running the asylum here. This wonderful, the most significant social movement of the 20th century, run by a bunch of losers. <laughs> you know? Remarkable. 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 Stop and think about this. I've been married three times, and people ask me for relationship advice. <laughs> I give it. I figure you can't hurt them. They're in AA, you know. <laughs> you can just practice on them and see if it works. I mean, stop and think of the advice you give. People always have this misconception about sponsoring people, like we run people's lives. Yeah. As if they take any of the advice at all, you know. I mean, there's this illusion that we're demonic possessors or something, you know. And so some guy calls you up and he says, you know, I'm thinking about marrying the new dancer. And you tell, you tell him, well, it probably doesn't sound like too good of an idea to me. But if you do it, I'll come to the wedding. 
I wouldn't want to miss this. What the hell? So now I'm in AA. I'm 37, going on 16. On a good day, I've got the emotional development of a 16-year-old, and this kid was not an honor student. He's the one with a bit of a problem with authority, you know, the loud, mouthy one, the big, looming, you know, frightened little boy, frightened little boy, always been a frightened little boy. Never knew I was, I never, I never felt that I could be a man. I never felt that I could raise a family or take care of children. Never. I can remember, I remember clearly being a teenager thinking I'll never be able to do that. You know, scared to death of it. Scared to death of women. And you can't say any of that out loud. You can't say any of it. You know, Karen expresses it beautifully. You know, her, her knowing her role with men you know, not understanding women at all. And, and every time I hear her share about that, I think, I don't think I understood my role on either side of that fence. I mean, I was this badass biker guy because I had some twisted illusion that that's what a man is. So I, I, try, I put on the uniform. I tried to be that. I wanted to be a gangster, an outlaw, a gunslinger. That's what I watched in the movies. I'm living a life of the movie. I'm living gun smoke, bonanza. You know, something like that. You know, I mean, what, what, what is that? What was I doing? What was I doing with those people? You know, I had no business being with those people at all. That's not who I am. Not even close. Not even close. So now I'm an Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm going to grow up through this stuff. And it's going to be difficult. And I have no clue. I don't know what's going on. Here's what I think I understand about it now. The first step says that I'm powerless over alcohol and that my life is unmanageable. Well, they told us that we were powerless over alcohol. They took it easy on us. They didn't want to tell us the whole truth for fear we would run screaming down the street. You know, who's going to walk into a program that says we are powerless over absolutely everything and our lives will never be able to be managed by us? We go, oh, no, thanks. What else have you got? What's behind door number two? Another choice, please. You know. And that's my, after 24 years of rather deep research, I don't believe I have any power over anything. Certainly none of you, you just absolutely insist on living your own life, no matter how much positive input I give you. You know, and it seems to be that in nature, I am just utterly powerless. Nature does not need me to be part of the unfolding. It just kind of unfolds all by itself, all the time, with virtually no input from me whatsoever. At best, I'm an audience. I'm just watching the show. And if I don't have any power, how could I possibly manage anything? Managers have power. So I don't think my life needs to be managed by me at all. It just unfolds along with everything else. It's only taken me about 20 years to get that part, you know. And my sponsor, when he hears me do this thing, I go, that's pretty good, isn't it? He goes, I've been telling you that for, oh, shut up. (laughs) You know, I just wasn't ready to hear, you know. And I think that's true, isn't it? I mean, you hear all this wonderful stuff, you know, and finally it sinks in one day like it's brand new information. That's why we read chapter five at every meeting. You know, just in case somebody might be listening. (laughs) You never know. Oh, that's interesting. I wonder where they got that from, you know. So if I can grasp the powerlessness thing, the the second step becomes operational. I need a manager. I'm not the manager. I need one. I need to be restored to sanity, certainly enough sanity to not drink and use, but also enough sanity to really realize the depth of my powerlessness and unmanageability, to really get that, to really get it. If I can grasp that, then the third step is the next logical thought progression. I turn my life and will over to it. 
What life and will? The fourth step. The resentments, fears, and broken relationships. Everything that I'm bringing to the table, living a life with seeming power. Here it is. Here's my stuff. I'm pooped. You know. The fifth step is the ceremony that we go through to actually complete the third step. We tell ourselves, another human being, and this manager, here's my stuff. This is it. Because my suffering really comes from the fact that I believe I have power. Something will happen to me in my life. Somebody close to me gets ill. Maybe somebody close to me dies. And I'm, I'm hurt. I'm injured. I have grief. And then, on top of that, I lay a layer of suffering when I say that should not have happened. That was incorrect. There is no justice. The world is coming to an edge and end. Screw it. I'm going to kill the whole neighborhood. You know, I mean, and it just goes like that. It escalates like that. Pretty soon I look at the world and it's all covered in darkness. This is the way it's always going to be. Life is a veil of tears. I've done all that. That comes from me. It doesn't come from the natural unfolding of things. Something just simply happened. It just happened. It's sad enough as it is. It doesn't need any help from me to be sadder than it already is. Therein lies my suffering. So the fifth step, I let go of these resentments, or I list them, I list them, I let go of them in the sense that here I'm going to expose them to the light of day. I have fear, of course I have fear, because I know this game plan that I've got is not working. So all the people that I resent, I fear them. All the people that have harmed me, supposedly, I fear them. So I hate you and I'm afraid of you. I had a guy in his fifth step one time, he said, I resent women because I can't have them. And I resent men because they all want my women. <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, you know, dude, that's the entire human race. That's pretty good. It's going to take a long time to make those amends though, man. Ooh. The sixth and seventh step are about character defects. I can see what they are. They're in the fourth column of the inventory of the resentment list. My faults and mistakes. It doesn't say my part. It says my faults and mistakes. At the very least, if I'm in my 40s and I'm carrying around a resentment that happened to me when I was five years old, I'm unforgiving. At the very least, I'm unforgiving. If I'm still carrying it around. Because I'm the one that's feeling it, not the person that did it. I'm feeling it. So I can see what the character defects are. You know, I'm, I'm arrogant, I'm pompous, I'm judgmental, I'm all whatever your cute little mix is. You can see what they are. The more that you do these inventories as the years go by, the more insightful that fourth column becomes because you know that's what we're looking for. We're not wasting a lot of time describing why that idiot did what he did, you know. It's more like how was I affected by it and what were my faults and mistakes? How did I put myself in that position? Then the manager gives us our first job. He says, go out and make amends. Make a list. Put all the resentment people on there. I'm going to help you rid yourself of these resentments. I'm going to help you do that. This is the mechanism for ridding myself of resentments. People say that ten, steps one through nine are about 15% of the program. It's sober 101. It is the bare minimum. If you and I are going to have a message that has depth and weight that we're going to carry to someone else, we must do these things or we have no message. It's 15% of the program and we do workshops on it. We have manuals. We do weekend long intensive 15 column expanded inventories. You know, I mean, we get so anal about it that if I do this other inventory one more time, it's another form of self obsession. 
It's just an, it's us thinking about ourselves again, you know, and if I've been relieved of the bondage of self, thank God it's over. I don't have to work on me anymore. It's over. People say 10, 11, and 12 are the maintenance steps. Maintain what? What have I got now? What have I got? Is this thing just about not drinking? I don't think so. That's already happened. I'm already not drinking. That's happened. If I want to be comfortable in my life, that's a whole nother game. That's a whole nother game. I don't think they were kidding when they said that self-obsession, selfishness and self-obsession was the root of our problems. That our very lives depend upon our constant thought of others and how we may help meet their needs. I don't think they were joking. I think it's literally true. Whenever I'm alone in a room thinking about myself, I should get out of the room. <laughs> Nothing positive will ever be accomplished by me sitting around thinking about myself. And I just spent two days in a hotel room in Stockholm thinking about me. So if I'm a little pissy, maybe you understand, you know, what's happened. You know, I'm trying to work through it right now, you know. The tenth step is the continuing inventory process. It's leading an examined life. It's paying attention. I'm walking down the hall. I'm not bouncing off the walls. I'm walking down the hall. I'm watching myself move through life. There's a difference between self-awareness and self-obsession. If what happened to me in March of 85 is I was awakened, the rest of the journey is to take that awakening and turn it into some kind of an awareness where I'm actually aware that I'm awake. And maybe there's something I can actually do with this. Maybe this isn't an error. Maybe, them, maybe there's something for me to do. The 11th step is about getting close to the manager. And you'll notice in the book that the body of the 10th step is really described in the 11th step. Bill had to break him up. He wanted there to be 12. But what a great spiritual exercise about reviewing your day and how to start a day. You know, if we could ever start the day thinking about the manager before we even start thinking, that would be an interesting day, you know. Now, in meditation, you can have the experience of watching your thoughts. That's a game changer. That changes the whole playing field. When I come to understand at depth, I am not my thinking mind. That is not who I am. Because if I can watch them, who's watching? <laughs> Interesting question, isn't it? Think about that. You know, what a remarkable thing. You know what that tells me? I don't have to change this thing. It's not my enemy. It's trying to help. It's just stupid. You know? I mean, it's not out to get me. We even talk about it in the third person. My head is out to get me. I think by mistake, we kind of got it right. It's just we, we phrase it in a negative. It's not the enemy. It's just there doing what it does. And I can just ignore the thing. And it'll die from lack of use. You know? I'm, I'm serious. When it comes up with this stuff, when I'm sitting in the hotel room, you know, I can just close my eyes and watch the breath. When I'm watching my breath, I'm, I realize I am being breathed. I'm not breathing. I'm being breathed. That's a game changer. I'm very close to the power that drives the entire universe when I'm close to my breath. The 12th step is the manifestation of all of this. The 12th step is what they're preparing us for. The 12th step is where we are healed. Literally, we are healed in the 12th step. The 12th step generates the experiences necessary for me to grow up emotionally. I cannot recover without you. You are an integral part of the process. And when I get on my knees and I ask for help, I shouldn't turn it away when it shows up. And it's going to look a lot like you. <laughs> you are the messenger. And for years, I thought I was saving you. I'm serious. I thought, this is my job, is to help these poor wretches. And then I come to realize, you're the messenger. 
When you sit in a room and you give a guy a 20-minute lecture on how he should live his life, then he gets up and he leaves the room, and you say to yourself, man, that's some good stuff. I should try some of that. (laughs) You run headlong into your own hypocrisy. Where else would that happen? If you weren't there, if I didn't have that experience, how would that happen? I used to stand up here and I'd say that if you were on medication, you weren't sober. Because I heard other people say that and it seemed like a really good badass opinion to have, you know? (laughs) And it's the old biker in me, you know? Let's piss some people off, see if we can clear out 20% of the room. Then we know we've really made a connection, you know? (laughs) Then this guy comes up and he asks me, he says, will you be my sponsor? I think I should tell you I'm bipolar and I'm on medication. And I went, oh, geez. (laughs) I promise you. If you open your heart to this work, if you have any prejudice at all, any prejudice at all, it will walk across the room and ask you for help. You can count, you can watch your watch, and it'll show up. There hasn't been one that I have not addressed. And if you want to maintain the prejudice, keep it across the room. Don't engage it. You'll find yourself. So I had to work the steps with this guy. You can't ever say no. It's a rule. And, uh, I worked the steps, and I had the experience of peeling him off the ceiling and lifting him off the floor. One time he curled up in my lap, put his head in my neck, and cried like a baby. And I just sit there and rock him. A 40-year-old grown man. Karen walks through the living room. She goes, whoa. (laughs) Now that'll get your attention. Now when I see that guy come, and I go, have you taken your medication? So I had an opinion. Then I had an experience, and it changed my opinion. I had a guy walk up to me and said, will you be my sponsor? I think I should tell you I'm gay. And I said, well, wouldn't you rather have a gay sponsor? And he said, no. He says, I don't have a problem being gay, but drinking is an issue. (laughs) Who knew? I guess I thought something else. The manager lives in the space between you and I. And the closer I am to you, the closer I am to him. People will tell you in Alcoholics Anonymous that you have to give it away to keep it. No. You have to give it away 